You are listening to the History Respawn Podcast. The HR Podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting our work by going to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. That's www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker, and I'm joined on today's show by John Harney. Hey, John. Hey, Bob. Uh, So John and I thought we would pop in today and talk a bit about a game that we've both just finished, uh, which is Wolfenstein II, The New Colossus. And our discussion of today's game uh, will be filled with spoilers. Uh, So if you're planning on playing this game and don't want to have anything uh, regarding the main story elements or even the gameplay ruined for you, please stop listening now. All right, with that out of the way, I wanted to remind everyone of the context of this game. Uh, this is the new title in the Wolfenstein series, uh, which picked up by Machine Games a few years ago and published by Bethesda. And it features an alternate history storyline in which Nazi Germany has won the Second World War using a catalog of advanced technologies uh, with mysterious origins. And the Nazi victory in World War II culminated with the occupation of the United States, uh, which began with the destruction of New York City with an atomic bomb. Wolfenstein II picks up the story in 1961 as B.J. Blaskowitz and his fellow resistance fighters work to lead a revolution against the Nazi occupation of America. Uh, so, John, did you play any of uh, Machine Games' first Wolfenstein game, The New Order? Yeah, I played the whole thing, and and uh, and I loved it, actually. That was fantastic. Awesome. So... I mean, given your experience with the first game, uh, which we covered with an episode of History Respawn, what did you make of kind of the narrative and gameplay changes between that game and the new Colossus? So I I thought they were significant. And it's something I've been thinking about ahead of the podcast was how much of this is kind of where I am, where, for example, being a parent is affecting my gaming more than ever before. <laughs> so I switched this game down to the easiest difficulty setting after dying on the top floor of the Manhattan building, like same what here. felt like a million times. And exact I just like, same I, mission. Yeah, exact same and mission I just like, well. I can't do this anymore. And for a while, I was kind of jumping between difficult levels and I just gave up and just went down to the easiest one. In The game continued to be good. I continued to be really enjoyable. You know, a lot of shooters, the easiest level are just, you know, silly. And this was a bit silly, but then it kind of made me understand that, you know, as bullet spongy as I had become, the game kind of still worked from a kind of a gameplay perspective. And there were lots of like little kind of things like the radial arm, you know, dual wielding didn't feel as satisfying as it could have. There's all these weird little things that kind of got in my nerves. But despite that, um, it's just this. it's, It's really good at what it is. These guys can really make a shooter. You know, you pick up those guns and go and you're kind of you're supposed to, you feel like you're being incentivized to get through these levels as quickly as you can um, within reason, right? Um, and that's where you start to get into this kind of like like doom, right? This kind of this rhythm, you know, boom, 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 you know, melee, shoot, shoot, melee, shoot, shoot, reload, reload you know, the, like they're trying to get you into this almost kind of fugue state, you know, <laughs> this kind of like <laughs> higher level state of playing. And even on the easiest difficulty level, I would get into these runs like that. I'm like, oh God, this game is so good, you know? 
Um, so, so although, and I, I kind of playing it mentally, taking note, I bet this radial menu is annoying everybody, but, you know, but, but I, you know, and it's kind of the silence pistol is superly overpowered, but you know, things like that, you know, that's fine. I don't really care. Um, the narrative changes I thought were significant. And again, the whole being a parent thing or whatever, I, I kind of tried to shield myself from too much info about the game and kind of was automatically shielded just from being so busy with work and everything else. Um, I did see a couple of those kind of cool full-length trailers they did that were super interesting, like the six-minute trailer that includes like all this German, you know, American Reich TV stuff. Um, so in the first third to half of the game, I was pleasantly surprised because I knew that the guys were going to the United States, but thematically the story was much more an American story than I thought, right? And so... I know that not everybody was blown away by the by the Blaskowitz's parents stuff, um, but I actually liked it, and I thought that it did something very important thematically, which is it just immediately located the conversation to how America's processing race before these white supremacist genocidal maniacs show up and take over the country, and it opens up very interesting conversations about collaboration and who would have collaborated, which you know again, and this is what I loved about the first game, the first game did so well thematically. So even though it's a game with these massive, like terrifying Panzerhunds that fire flame at you and stuff, and it's clearly gonzo over the top craziness, it still manages to talk about the Holocaust this really interesting way, right? So the first third of the game, I was feeling really good about it. And Blaskowitz's father, um, I thought is a great way to get into this kind of Americanization of the conversation. And then, um, God, the leader of the resistance, help me, Bob, her name. It's not Grace, was it? Or... Um, yeah, isn't it Grace? I thought, I thought so. it, it is Grace. So she shows up. Caroline to Grace. Right? That's right. Yeah. She 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 shows up, and she's so obviously a representation of the Black Power movement, um, which again kicks up interesting questions that I hope to ask our guest in January. How does yeah. Black Power emerge in this particular post-war scenario? Yeah. And then finally, the guy in New Orleans, and the the guy in New Orleans for me, that was where things started to tip. Where there's this huge cutscene where Blaskowitz gets drunk and has the screaming fight with um, the New Orleans character about being a socialist versus going and fighting the Nazis. And then Blaskowitz passes out. And it's at that point that you realize they've decided this is the game they want, which is fine. And they want to go into this exploitation direction. But I think they lost a lot of the direction I liked about the first game when they did it. And what I found is the final third, even to half of the game, like when I got, when I, I don't know, I really thought something was coming after the final level. And it was only I when I was, so it was only when I was up on the deck of the, um, uh, the Ausreiser, I think it was called, the, the Flying Fortress. It was only when I had that classic final level, look at all the stuff we're throwing at you type stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm fighting these guys and I realized, oh, this has to be the end of the game. The culmination. Yeah. Yeah. And that was just, that was really disappointing. You know, <laughs> I was just surprised. And so so for me, there was definitely a point about halfway through the game where it might be too cruel to say they lost direction or unfair because I think they made a very clear artistic decision. But especially for me as an historian, it makes Wolfenstein 2 less successful than the first game in kind of being this really cool interpretation and use of counterfactual history to explore existing historical narratives. Like I, I felt it kind of just it kind of gave up on that in the second half of the game to me. Yeah, that was my take I, on it. I agree. I felt like, uh, like you said, I think the first half of the game, uh, which I think the game can be split uh, b- 
between uh, before Blaskowitz has his head cut off and afterwards. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Uh, it seems like uh, it seems like the first half of the game is a continuation, a natural continuation of the first game, whereas the second half of the game is a bit more of a mess, I think, uh, mm. thematically and narratively. Um, and I thought, you know, in terms of gameplay, I was I was a bit upset with the fact that it felt like the they left the stealth mechanics behind. Oh, um, they're gone. Yeah. yeah, in the first game, it really felt like they designed the levels in a way that would encourage uh, stealth, that would encourage the use of knives and, uh, you know, silent attacks. But in this game, I mean, I really found it incredibly difficult to move through the level stealthily. And I ended up just dual wielding uh, the whole time, which is fun. Uh, but I wish that they really hadn't even bothered uh, with the stealth mechanics. Um, but I think, like you said, there are some interesting narrative elements in the first half of the game, uh, particularly with kind of this uh, depiction of American collaboration. Uh, the really good mission for that is when they travel to Roswell, New Mexico, uh, and you start the game disguised as a fireman. Uh, and you're walking through the streets of Roswell, uh, where they've got uh, members of the KKK uh, talking with uh, the Nazis, and then also a huge uh, parade celebrating the Nazi occupation, the anniversary of the Nazi occupation of the United States. Um, and there's, you know, there's a couple of problems with that. I mean, obviously, uh, and we went into detail with this in the coverage for Mafia Three. Last year, uh, the KKK wouldn't bother wearing hoods uh, if they were out in the open, right? Right, uh, right. That, yeah. That's kind of the it was kind of the story with uh, New Orleans, right? Mafia Three, right? Uh, the KKK didn't have much of a presence there because the police were doing, uh, you know, from the racist perspective, were doing a bang up job of keeping the black population down. So there's no need uh, right. to have the hoods, the cross burnings, none of that stuff, right? Um, and then, you know, the depiction of New Orleans uh, that comes, on the, you know, the, in the game, you know, as you talked about with the kind of the Cajuns and the socialist Cajuns, you know, uh, having a drinking contest <laughs> <laughs> with Blackwoods. I mean, it's, it's funny because, you know, in the game, uh, New Orleans has been turned into a ghetto. It's recognized as kind of a center for black culture. Uh, jazz music. There's a lot of uh, advertisements throughout uh, the submarine, the base uh, for Blaskowitz and the Chrysal Circle that depicts New Orleans and jazz and black music. Um, but the thing is, I, I personally find this really hard to believe because, you know, from the late 1940s going through the 50s, New Orleans is considered to be a white city, right? It's kind of the prize city of the Old South. So the thought just from like kind of a nitpicky historical angle, the thought of right. turning New Orleans into a ghetto, right? This kind of jewel of the Delta, turning it right. into a ghetto is is rather hard to believe. And I think it comes more out of uh, this kind of uh, European notion of New Orleans as not just as a black city, but also a, a place that's synonymous with disaster, right? You know, you think of right. Hurricane Katrina, you think of recent floodings, and I think that that kind of plays into that depiction of uh, New Orleans a bit now. So I was, I mean, there there are so many elements, you know, like you said, the collaboration angle and Roswell that work, but it just kind of a, from a nitpicky standpoint, there were some things that bothered me. 
Well, it's an interesting challenge because, you know, I remember a time where I would have been totally happy with shooter campaigns to be like 23 hours long, you know. Mm-hmm. This day and age, I, I, I prefer them to be shorter, actually. Um, but we did this kind of greatest hits tour of these cool ideas, and none of them are really settled on or feel settled on. And the other thing, there's an interesting issue going on in our field, I think, um, where a lot of historians are being very active politically or in some ways in social media and stuff, which is obviously everybody's right to do. But it's difficult to know when the line comes, is when am I being presentist or not? And the people who made Wolfenstein 2 are under zero such limitations. It's it's their work. They should do work they want to do. But the first game to me felt like something, and I do use it in class, isn't this interesting? Like I've showed the cutscene where you come out of the the people carrier, you know, the the kind of the the train uh, into into the into the concentration camp that is very obviously a kind of the game's version of well, that is the game's version of the Holocaust camps, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and something about all of the approach to it is is capturing beautifully what I want my students to talk about, which is like how what is this thing? How does it happen? The counterfactual in many ways is kind of interesting because yes, there's still Nazis, but it divorces us from from the timeline so it's you can't just write it off as just a german thing or whatever and it, it just it just plays into the way i want to talk about history and the second game's successes where i feel it's successful is is very presentist and it's interesting because all the i got so annoyed at the at the supposed controversy over the game because i don't know i feel more people were upset that there were idiots out there who don't like Nazis being shot in a video game than there actually were idiots who were upset in the first place. And totally agree. I well, totally agree. And I, and I yeah. have huge concerns about amplifying the voices of idiots, you know? So yeah. yes, the media team had this punch and Nazi thing, which if you were being super sensitive, I think you could say, oh, they're being liberal. But again, I think you're defeating yourself at that point. And I think getting upset by that is silly. But then in the game, and, and you know, I think you're right, like the, the, there's so much water in the New Orleans level that you're constantly, you know, there are a couple of times where the game kind of forces you to go under the water and come back up. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the moment at the end where um, I can't remember her name, even though he spends the first game talking to her, but she's not there. Uh, Caroline. Yeah. Oh, Caroline, sorry. You know, a, pre- a heavily pregnant Caroline, topless, drenched in blood, killing Nazis. Oh, oh. Oh, uh, Anya. Anya. Anya sorry. I thought you. Yeah. Oh no, no. Yeah, I, yeah. They're, they're, they're two women that he. That's right. That aren't present at the That's level, right. but he still talks to. Ongoing. <laughs> oh God, that went on for too long as well. But but Anya, <laughs> you know, Anya bathed in blood, naked, heavily pregnant. It's such a kind of a. This is nuts. Like in the spirit of the game, this is what you guys have been trying to do, and I get it. And it's a particularly strong example of how a big, big, big game can be go super full exploitation. Mm-hmm. And it also felt about a certain kind of a statement that reflected things the makers, the writers, the creators wanted to say politically today, which again is fine. It just creates a different for me being selfish and thinking about how to talk about this, think about it, how to teach it, how to teach using it, it, it creates a different type of raw material for me to think about. That was how I especially the second half of the game. The first half of the game yes. is much more usable for me in that in those particular with those particular parameters. I agree. Yeah. Um and you know, I like how you you know you just mentioned uh, the kind of usability of the first half. You know, the first half concludes with uh, the mission going to Mesquite, Texas, uh, which the location Mesquite is kind of a nod to uh, the place of development for Wolfenstein 3D. Uh, and so he goes uh, to Mesquite uh, to see what happened to his family. Uh, ends up running to his father who turns out has become a, a collaborator 
uh, with the Nazis and in particular uh, sold out uh, his own wife, uh, Blaskowitz's mother, uh, who was of uh, who was a Jew, right? A Eastern European Jew. Um, and so, I mean, I think that that section is really interesting because like you said, it kind of plays into some of the themes, some of the topics that we could talk about as historians with, you know, 20th century America, right? Not just before the Second World War, but even afterwards. But then it feels like those elements, the same kind of careful work, which you also saw in the first game in the New Order, is kind of left to the side and it just goes, like you said, full exploitation right. uh, in the second half. And to the point where you actually have Hitler uh, depicted yes. in this game. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. So I know that not everyone was a huge fan of Blaskovich's father, but the dialogue for that character is really good in terms of, you know, he's so embittered, you know, the white man can't get ahead. And so when the Nazis come in, he's like, oh, finally, like, he's just yeah. kind of, this is great. Like, this it feels is- very authentic. And this is coming, this is coming from a historian, but also a Texan. Right? This, <laughs> right. this feels very authentic. Right. The grievance, right? Like his father is so aggrieved. And now in his own, although if anything, he's arguably more emasculated than ever, but he has the wealth that he felt he was being denied and, and all these kinds of things. I I don't want to steal your thunder because you made a great point about uh, about the appearance of Hitler, um, and I think we should talk a little bit. I have I want to talk a little bit about how this game interacts with the first Wolfenstein series of the nineteen nineties. But I was kind of disappointed representations of Hitler because and we I should under- say briefly that the Hitler appears uh, in a mission uh, in the second half of the game where uh, Blaskowitz uh, needs the codes uh, for this. Uh, kind of Nazi super weapon and the codes are located uh, on the Nazi base on Venus, uh, the planet Venus. Uh, so he travels to Venus impersonating an actor uh, who is going up for the role of BJ Blaskowitz in a film uh, being directed uh, and written by Hitler. Uh, and so the scene that we're referring to that depicts Hitler has you basically do a live audition uh, with Hitler in which you have to pick the correct lines uh, that'll please Hitler so that you can get the part right. in the movie. And 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 Hitler is syphilitic or, you know, he's just... Yeah, he's sickly, pathetic. he's belligerent, um, he's right. uncontrollable. Yeah. And and I think that um, there's so much about that in theory that I like. I actually don't, I mean, I wouldn't, yes, going to Venus kind of repeats going to the moon in the first game, but in a way that I think actually kind of works in a sequel kind of a way. Um I just thought it makes sense to me that they would present Hitler as, you know, in late in his career, turning to making, you know, agiprop or making movies and having everyone, you know, demanding everyone accept him as the world's greatest artist. Uh, yeah, like, taking yeah. credit for everything. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, I totally, yes, I totally could see that happening. Um, and the notion um, and, and, and going into that scene with the objective of let's make this guy pathetic because that's what he was like, yeah, I think that's great. But and it wasn't even so much the illness and stuff. It was just randomly shooting people for getting lines wrong, cheering Blaskowitz for murdering somebody in front of him. And it just kind of felt like if you're kind of actually, for me, it felt too off message. It's like, well, hang on. Now it's just, now we're kind of getting away from what was pathetic about him. Cause Hitler wasn't someone who was shooting people in the head in the middle of a meeting. Like he wasn't his, his, his evil was more focused than that as, 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 as unfocused as he could be as the, as Operation Barbarossa shows us, right? But like, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't 
and I guess the ga- the writers could argue, oh, he becomes that later in his life in our timeline. Okay, fair enough. But I don't know. For me, I'm fine, having trouble explaining this, but it made him less pathetic, which was a problem. It took away from yes. the strength of that depiction. It's like, I agree. Well, you're making him kind of a psychotic murderer, which of course Hitler was, but but you're, you're, you're losing the essence of what's horrific about him. Right. In, in some way, having him murder people in the game makes him stronger. Yeah. Uh, in a weird way. And But I mean, I looked on that as kind of there laying the groundwork for the inevitable appearance of Mecha Hitler yeah. uh, in the third iteration of this game. So, I mean, I, I can kind of forgive them a bit for that. But, you know, I think there is something troubling with that because it, it does make it seem like, oh, well, Hitler was somebody to, to, to do these types of things on his own. Right. And right. You know, again, we can keep talking about this issue about, well, people don't take these games seriously, but, you know, it's still, it kind of contributes to this general cultural mix, this cultural memory of the Nazi regime, of Hitler uh, in particular. And I think, I mean, from just a kind of uh, historical historian's perspective, you know, my spidey sense was tingling uh, during that whole scene. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, you know, I just feel... Um, I really do get what they were going for, but it's an interesting thing in how the tone shifts and how their approach shifts as the game was going on. So for, I think Hitler was probably a personal turning point for me where I'm like, I just don't really like what this is doing. Um, and I think it's less effective than previous treatments. And then overall, the game never really returns to Grace and beyond Grace and um, the other New Orleans character, the man playing the clarinet, Papa something, I forget his name. Mm-hmm. I don't remember his name either. Yeah, he's briefly in it. There's not, there's, Suddenly, these things aren't explored. And again, I know there's not time to do everything. I know that it's not that kind of a game, and I understand that. But but you end up having all these missed opportunities. But it creates this interesting idea in talking, you know, I always tell my students on the first day of my class, teaching again this January, this class is called History and Video Games, not History of Video Games, because those are two different things, two different ideas. But mm-hmm. there's for me, the new Colossus felt like more of an attempt to... Um, reclaim a certain mantle from the original series in the 1990s of we're going to go nuts. And I hadn't thought of the Mecha Hitler thing until you said it. I was like, oh, of course, because the entire scene, there's this massive, <laughs> this is very clearly what's going to Mecha Hitler's vessel or something similar to it in the background. Mm-hmm. Of course, how did I not think of that? And then the more I thought about it, it, was like, yeah, you know, the early games went mad and that feels what these games are doing. And it's just kind of, I'm just disappointed because it just, they're free to take whatever direction they want, but it's not the direction... I liked <laughs> it. Are they they're they're taking it further away from the things I liked about the first game and the first half of this game? And I'm sure I'll play the third game and I'll probably like it still. But it's not the first game and the first half of this game were a wonderful confluence where I love this game, I'm really enjoying it, and I can't wait to tell my students about it and have them talk about it and have them react to it. Um, and you know, things go a different direction here. Yeah, and I I was left. I think you might feel the same way, but I was left feeling kind of more admiration for the first game and feeling admiration not only in terms of the way it dealt with themes and topics related to Nazism and its depiction in fiction, but also uh, with regards to gameplay. I just think that the first game was more fun to play. It was kind of more uh, diverse in the mechanics. And there are really diverse mechanics in this game as well. But again, because of the level design it seems pointing it seems like it's pointing you towards uh playing it dual wielding uh, rather than going through stealth um if you can handle the extraordinarily long reload times and yes <laughs> oh my god <laughs> um yeah the long reload times um 
and so I, I, you know, I, it's, it's kind of a, it's a weird game. I mean, yeah. obviously, you know, you're going to cover it in an episode uh, and you should talk more about that, what your kind of plans are for that. But mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's the type of game that I would personally have a hard time recommending to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just because I feel like it, especially from a gameplay perspective, it's not very satisfying. And the cutscene to cutscene story, it is extraordinary, right? There are moments where you just go, oh my God, you know, like, oh, he got his head cut off and then <laughs> reattached to another body. Isn't that crazy? Um, but beyond those kind of shock moments, I feel like the first game had more going for it with regards to the the way that its alternative history touched on the Nazi past and did so, I think, in a more effective and efficient way than than this game does well i think you know i was um we're coming to the end of the term here i know you just started a term at louisiana tech bob but we're coming to the end of a term here at center so i've been doing a lot of grading which is going to explain this analogy but the first game the first game was like an a like boom no question like this is this is what an excellent video game looks like in my in in john harney's you know um you know taxonomy of games right the second game, the second game is the kind of the second game is an essay. A really talented student hands in, and you sit her down after, and you say to her, "There is so much cool stuff going on here, but you had to give up on a couple of them to deliver yeah. on what you had." And or, mecha- you, or you needed two more works, uh, two more weeks, right? Yes, and so for example, mechanics, you know, so the head, the decapitation moment is so interesting and is probably the high point of the game. Um, so, you know, Blaskwitch has actually has been captured. Um, one of the other characters shows up to ostensibly rescue you. It doesn't go very well. Blaskowicz has a kind of a, a dream sequence, a dreamed escape, which fails. And there's this whole, there's this whole narrative of the first half of the game where his body has failed him and he's pathetic and he's feeling sorry for himself. And I, I just thought it was so interesting. And then they kill you, which genuinely got me. And then when you're when your head when your head is in this tub and they're talking to you and um uh oh god the uh, the professor the scientist's pet Set. Set, yeah. Set, Set's pet comes up and looks at you and I'm like I'm an idiot for not seeing this coming I know I, spent, I felt the exact same yeah. way <laughs> I spent the first half of this game walking around with a you know with a body that doesn't work the the scientist character who has access to all this kind of arcane occult technology has a pet where he successfully grafted um, the head of one animal onto the body of another, and it a never cat onto a monkey. A, yeah, a yeah. cat onto a monkey. And I was it, just like, oh, I wonder why they're taking so much time introducing this cat. Like, <laughs> yeah. What's the deal with this? No, so I felt so foolish when I was like, oh, of course, but I, but also testament to their success in in making it work, right? And then they say, and which of these three bonuses do you want? Do you want to be able to walk around on stilts, or do you want to be able to b- bash through things? And I'm like, ha, huh, okay. And and that never delivered at all. You know, that's kind of gameplay. And then and then narratively as well, where it just kind of felt like, God, there's just what were you guys trying to do? And now I'm seeing I'm I'm being overly critical now because I still thought it was a good game. I still thought it was a success. But I do agree the first game was just was better. And then the first game had a clearer sense of what it was doing. And part of me wonders what is the third game? What will the third game be? Will the third game be confirmation that they were always going in a crazy direction? That's why Mecha Hitler is going to be what it is. Or will this be a really interesting, messy sequel? Like almost an example of how how mature the medium is becoming, where this is a, this is not a home run, but it's 
interesting and it almost becomes this is going to sound super pretentious but i don't know if i'd recommend this to someone who doesn't play a lot of games but oh, we're having this yeah, kind of a conversation exactly. about it we're having this kind of a conversation about it where i could say you know it's messy but here's what you get out of it you know so if you're the kind of person who like me spends way too much money on video games and plays a lot of them plays you know multiple games per month then yes you should play it but but if you're any way short of that then the first game is amazing and after that you make your own decision you know <laughs> Or, or maybe because it's so crazy, this is a game that you would recommend somebody who never plays games to play. Right? Well, maybe, uh, although it, it could it, go I think, the other way. I think they're also playing with. I think, and it's so younger listeners won't have much like personal memory of this, but it's not that long ago that you had that lawyer in Florida trying to like have games banned, and you know, Doom being blamed for the Columbine massacre and all this kind of stuff. This game plays with video games' reputation for violence while also refusing to be contained by the video game medium and kind of saying, well, movies do this, why can't we? In a way that's really kind of artistically interesting, but that could be misunderstood almost immediately by <laughs> someone who doesn't play a lot of games. And I'm thinking mostly of, I'm, I'm still thinking of a pregnant, naked Anya covered in blood murdering Nazis. I can't seem to get that image out of my head. <laughs> well, I think that says more about you, John, than the game. Um, so... Oh, and really quickly, got, uh, I'm so sorry. I have one more oh, thing yeah, to say. I'm so sorry, Bob. One more thing to say. Really quickly, I meant to say this. In terms of things being packed in, if you if you go around and like hold the square button and, and pick stuff up, you know, the classic like notes and stuff in the video game world, if you pick those up and if you read all of them, and if you or read the ones that you find without having to work too hard, and if you go and you watch some of the um the video stuff in preparation for the release of the game, there's a whole game that isn't there in terms of narrative and theme. Do you know what I mean? Like, like yes, you yes, you killed a bad guy in a TV studio at the end, but that hasn't really been set up, except for these notes you found and the advertising for the game, which made a big deal about the use of media by the Reich to, uh, to suppress Americans. And yep. there's none of that in the game. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so that, that was another example where I kind of finished the game and I was like, I feel like there were some conversations had at the writing level where guy where people walked away going, ah, I want this in the game. And I kind of wish they'd won that battle, but that's the challenge of collaborative creativity, you know? Uh, yeah. You know, I, I noticed that as well, but I saw that more as there must've been two different writing teams, you know, yeah. one to do the cutscenes, one to do the main storyline, and then one to, to kind of do the, uh, the, uh, what do you call it? Environmental storytelling, right? I, right. I think that, makes that the the text that you pick up counts as environmental story, the collectibles. Um, but those, I mean, those were really interesting. Of course, uh, I'm in the midst of teaching a class on Hitler's Germany right now. And an important element of that, and one that the students are really interested in learning more about, uh, are the propaganda elements, the kind of what I've been calling uh, fake news in the interwar period. Um <laughs> And we are going to be reading uh, large sections of Ian Kershaw's uh, Hitler myth, uh, which really kind of follows not necessarily the career of Hitler, but the career of Nazi propagandists, right? particularly Joseph Goebbels, and how they kind of carefully constructed uh, Hitler's image and the Nazi image. And I think that that, you know, you're talking in terms of authenticity in a counterfactual game, you know, it's kind of ridiculous anyways, but I think that those uh, kind of collectible narrative elements are some of the most authentic, historically authentic things that you see in the game, this idea that, well, yes, if they did continue, right, if this did go forward, uh, you know, the pursuit of propaganda through film and television would have been just as central uh, to the Nazi occupation as the military mission, right? They They were really... 
uh, kind of went hand in hand, uh, you know, from Hitler's perspective, from the perspective of Goebbels. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it would have been nice to see more of that in the actual cutscenes in the game, but I think it has more to do with how the game was developed mm-hmm. uh, than than anything else. It is a noticeable thing in the game where the cutscenes kind of come in. Cutscene has begun, and it's kind of ha, huh. and it's interesting to me because this is the kind of thing people complained about in video games like fifteen years ago. But I wouldn't make the same complaint about Wolfenstein 2. I'm not, I'm not trying to complain, oh, look at this data thing they do. But it's just interesting no, it's, to me. Ha, huh, the divide between the cutscenes in the game is huge yeah. in this game. Because you're right. The big thing in the past, I'd say, seven years or so is to have seamless cutscenes, right? right. To, Half-Life to 2 have style. Everything. You know? Yeah, have everything occur within the game engine, right? The, the actual gameplay engine rather than having a separate cutscene. You're right about that. I didn't think about that. Yeah, that's well, I, I didn't think I didn't think about your point about there being two separate writing teams. I think that's a good call, um, yeah. and you know, it, it just shows, and it just just shows what a huge challenge these big projects are. Yeah. Um, so you've got an episode that you're planning on doing on this game for History uh-huh. Respawn for the YouTube series, and then also the podcast. So, what are you? I mean, after playing the game, what what is your approach to that episode going to be? So the big moment for me was, you know, I got the game. And I started the game and I I guess, you know, despite um, Bethesda being very clear with the marketing, I kind of had it in my head. I was going to talk about Nazi history or, or you know, kind of the, 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 the legacy of Nazism or maybe the legacy of totalitarianism, 20th century totalitarianism. And as I went through it, especially with Blaskowitz's father and then later with Grace, I was like, oh, no, this is clearly an American story. They're clearly telling American stories. And so... Um, that's when I thought of Robert Green, who joined us. Uh, we did a three-hander that time. You, me, and Robert did Bioshock together, um, the remastered Bioshock. And he was a great guest. And Robert's focus is intellectual history in the United States. Um, and so I'm looking forward to speaking with Robert. And I think one of the big things, kind of, you know, you're, you, as you know, Bob, you're, you're forming the questions as you go in preparation for the episode. One of the big questions I, I really like to ask him is this concept of representations of black power and also representations of American socialism. Mm-hmm. I think they're two different kind of interesting questions, which is, and I haven't formulated them yet. So, you know, people listening should, I promise this will be better for the actual episode. But um, <laughs> the black power thing is, does black power, well, oh, see, this is why it's tricky. Does black power emerge in the United States, a poster United States in this counterfactual narrative like what are the conditions that made black power a reality in the american story you know and how do we translate it into this nazi driven reality and then the socialism question is a slightly different one because i think the game addresses the issue of american socialism kind of being given short shrift you know and and the socialist character aggressively um he aggressively defends the legacy of american socialism and Blaskowitz responds by saying to hell with you you didn't fight the nazis i did you know it was a really interesting kind of a moment and that's where the game the game decides it's going to go crazy completely at that point i thought but that i think that raises a couple of interesting questions that i'd like to ask robert about this kind of these american political traditions you know yeah. um it, and, and what's yeah, going on there yeah i don't know too much about the uh you know socialism in the united states but definitely from a european perspective they were only too eager european socialists were only too eager to fight and kill nazis um right so I'm I'm kind of curious as to what Robert will have to say for that. For for Black Power, you know, this is something that I studied up on for the Mafia Three episode because it was such a central part of that, and also just kind of my own study of the history of colonialism, et cetera. 
it, it's so difficult to understand the black power movement without also considering the history of nationalism, decolonization uh, in the developing world, particularly in Africa during the early 1960s, right? That inspires so much of what goes on in the black power movement, which really emerges uh, in the late 1960s. So I'd be curious to see what Robert has to say that about, you know, but it's kind of, it's interesting from a counterfactual point of view, because you can see from the machine, machine game standpoint, they're saying, oh, well, if the Nazis had been there, then the black power movement would have emerged even quicker. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I kind of look at that and I'd say, well, maybe it would not have emerged because it wouldn't have had this um, amazing outside inspiration mm-hmm. coming from the colonial world, um, which I think is very difficult to separate those two things, uh, you know, colonial nationalism and the black power movement. And then you get into these really interesting questions about form and we're not, you know, we're historians and history respond is not the best place to go for discussions of the form of video games, but, but they do give grace the hairstyle and the clothing and the diction of like a classic, you know, late sixties, you know, black power Pam, person. Pam right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Film. Yeah. And they're doing that for the audience, right? They're doing that for us. They're doing that to translate the idea for us, which makes sense, but, but historically throws up lots of interesting cultural history questions. <laughs> like, where does that come from? You know, and where does this, where do these notions of blackness actually come from? Um, you have the clarinet playing character who he is, he's, he's got more to him than this, but one could just kind of limit him to, well, he's a guy who's a black guy who plays clarinet, you know? And I'm not, I'm not saying, Oh, I'm not accusing them of writing like a pastiche, you know, a minority character. That's not at all what they did. Um, but it, but it is, but it's an interesting. These decisions are made deliberately to create intelligible ideas for the audience. But I think it throws up very interesting historical questions. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that does it for today's episode. Uh, we'll have more history respawn content up soon. Uh, I'm trying to work. I promise. Uh, on an episode on uh, Call of Duty World War II. I think I'm going to make that a solo episode. Uh, just featuring myself uh, complaining about the game, essentially. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, then I'm still in progress working on rebuilding the website. Hopefully that'll be done by the end of the year. Uh, and then also, uh, I've got a guest lined up for the episode on Assassin's Creed origins, but I still need to get more footage. So hopefully that'll be done by the end of the year, but if not, uh, then in early January. Um, and then of course, uh, look forward to John's episode on Wolfenstein II: the new Colossus, uh, sometime in the new year. Uh, Until then, goodbye.